0: Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho, copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon.
1: And all God's people said, Let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. Exodus 15, verse 2 says, The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him in habitation. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Father God. You are glorious in majesty, perfect in power, incomparable in beauty, and we, your people, are in awe of you. We have come into your house this morning, and we desire to fill these courts with the praise of your great glory. May our songs and prayers arise to you and ring throughout the whole world, for our God reigns. The nations may rage and clash and clamor, but you remain king of all the nations, and we delight to worship you and you alone. So, Almighty God, we worship you now through Jesus Christ, Christ your son who lives and reigns with you and the holy spirit one god world without end and amen, amen. Jesus commands us in Mark 9:43 that if thy hand offend thee cut it off and then he repeats this for the foot and the eye with the point being take the battle against sin seriously better to lose limbs than let sin conquer you Better to live free and die than to live in slavery to sin and die spiritually. In this room is a wide variety of sins. The sin which you might find uh, such a struggle to overcome might not be the sin which the person to the left of you finds they are beset by. And the person on your right could be facing some other sin entirely. But each of you need to face your sins and temptations square in the face and resolve to do whatever it takes by the sanctifying spirit of Christ to resist your sins. Confessing your sin is a sort of cutting off of your hand. It is acknowledging the wickedness of your sin and your admission that it is vile in God's sight. It is you separating yourself from your sin. But the routine of confessing your sins, confessing our sins at this point in our service each week should not be taken as a permission slip to go out and get a new hand to facilitate your sin tomorrow. Jesus didn't say that if your hand causes you to sin to cut it off, but it's okay to go get a prosthetic hand tomorrow. He didn't say pluck out your eye and then replace it with a robotically enhanced one tomorrow. So, confess your sin. Cut off anything which facilitates that sin you need to confess this morning. Delete that app, Leave that group of friends, cut up your credit card, unsubscribe from that streaming stu- service. Don't go to that party, don't hit the snooze button. In other words, make no provision for the flesh. Kill it, mortify it, and triumph over it in the death and resurrection of Christ, which enables you to be victorious over your sin. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so let us prepare to do so by singing The Sacrifices of God, Our Broken Spirit. So as you're able, let us kneel together in confession of our sin. Exodus 25 says, And I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Father God, we may think that confessing our sin buys us some well-deserved permission to sin, but we know we ought never to sin so that grace may abound. Rather, your grace abounds that we might slit the throat of our most darling sins. Forgive us for dandling our temptations on our knees and nurturing them into deathly dragons rather than manfully destroying them by the power of your spirit. We have all too often crucified the Lord of glory afresh and trampled the grace you offer. In so doing, we have failed to be a witness of your salvation to this lost world. And If we in the church regard such sins in our own hearts or in our own lives, we know this prayer will be ineffectual. So we now confess our individual sins to you and Selah. We do this in Jesus' mighty name and amen. amen. Let's rise for the assurance of God's pardon. Isaiah 12:3 says, Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. Sin is a joyless misery, but salvation is a well of joy and glory. God, through Christ, extends this joy to you in the redemptive work He did on Golgotha's Hill. And it is because of that that I can declare unto you that your sins are forgiven through
0: Christ. The sermon text is taken from Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in chapter 5, at verse 22, continuing into chapter 6. that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment, with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, and singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service, as man pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, the goodwill with goodwill doing service as to the lord not to men knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth the same shall be received of the lord whether he be bond or free and ye masters do the same things unto them forbearing threatening knowing that your master also is in heaven neither is there any respect of persons with him our god and father The institution of the family has been under assault for a number of decades and we confess the church has failed to faithfully proclaim your gospel to families so that they may stand strong under your blessing. Nevertheless, we're bold to ask for the blessing that you promised to Abraham many centuries ago. We ask that that blessing would be upon us and our children and our children's children and our neighbors and their families to the ends of the earth and to a thousand generations. Father, we are bold to ask for this only because of the obedience and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So give us faith to hear your glorious promises now and give us faith to believe and trust in you alone. Because we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we established the cosmic significance of the family, what we called the cosmic significance of the family. The family is uh, not merely a uh, spiritual uh, creation of God, and it is not merely a material creation of God, but it is both together in a glorious way, and, and so we used the word cosmic. We discussed how the Bible uh, points us Uh, To heaven, to our Father in heaven, points us to the angels and also to people as living souls, uh, souls that will live forever. And so what we are doing in our families fundamentally is making people who will live forever. And so what we're doing in our homes as we marry, as we have children, as we raise them, as we send them out Uh, As we uh, support one another in this task in teaching and in feeding and in clothing and in building businesses that then in turn support one another in whatever role we play, whatever kind of family we find ourselves in, uh, we see that what we're doing is making people who will live forever. We're making disciples. We're making uh, people who will be fruitful in this life and the next. And um, and so promised that this week we would explore this further, Uh, what the Bible says goes into this process and so um, we want to look at this text in particular and and there's a lot here and and obviously there's so much there we're not going to get every little bit of it but part of the point of holding it all together is to see the whole household as part of this task and so you have the marriage passage that we've heard many times but remember in the in, in the original the chapter divisions are not there and so Paul didn't just stop there and 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 leave it but he goes on to talk about children and parents and servants and masters and that's that whole household uh, picture is uh, I want to argue uh, at least um, by extension part of that cosmic mystery that he's talking about marriage is the center of it then children and education and businesses uh, the broader household um, is all taken up in some sense into that mystery so how many of you use the phrase because of the angels this week seriously come on now I don't know, this, that's not very good. <laughs> because of the angels. Can you just, just work it in, just work it in. You know, just when you're texting because of the angels, just, it'll be good for you. So let's look at this text together. Uh, Paul commands wives to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord, just as the church does to Christ in everything. This is glorious, this is glorious. If, if the church is called to this, this is a glorious calling. It's an essential calling. It's not optional. It's wonderful. Just as the church does to Christ in everything, verses 22 through 24. Likewise, husbands are to love their wives sacrificially. That's defined by Paul, by Christ, imitating Christ's love so that those wives are washed and purified. We see this in verses 25-25. Through 27. So, the model of love, what it looks like, is Christ laying his life down for his bride in order to cleanse her, in order to purify her. Which means, incidentally, that it doesn't mean doing whatever she says to do. Right? It doesn't mean just doing whatever she says to do. It means loving her in order to make her more pure, make her more holy, make her more like Christ. And of course, in order to do that well, you're going to have to listen to her carefully. You're going to have to study her carefully. You're going to have to have regular feedback mechanisms. Am I getting there? Am I gaining on it? Are we heading in the right direction? Are we going after Christ? Are we growing in holiness? You can't just quote these verses and then assume it's happening. That's the temptation. You hear the verse again, oh yeah, that's a good one really like that verse, right? Maybe it's even on your, your, your a calendar or on the refrigerator, but is it happening? Is your love for your wife making her more like Jesus? Do you see the fruit of that love or not? Paul presses the fact that husband and wife are one flesh, requiring that husbands nourish and cherish their wives just as they do their own bodies. You feed and you clothe your own body. You keep your own body warm when it's cold outside. This is what you do. This is how you love your wife, just as Christ does the church. Ephesians 5, 28 through 31 Paul says there's a lot going on in this mystery. There's a lot going on in this mystery, namely the fact that the central thing marriage is talking about is Christ and the church. You don't have the option to check out of this. You say, well, our marriage, our family's not talking about this. No, it is. You are participating in that mystery. You are talking about it. The only question is, what is your marriage saying? How is it articulating the gospel? How is it proclaiming Christ to your neighbors, to your family, to your children, to your brothers and sisters, to your parents? And regardless of whether we understand how that is true, regardless of whether we understand fully that mystery that Paul's talking about, he returns to the point and says, nevertheless, husbands, love your wives. Wives... Respect your husbands. Verse 33. Again, remember the chapter breaks were added later, and therefore part of the mystery also includes what happens in this family. This man and this woman become one flesh, and they bear children. They become one flesh, and they welcome children into their home. Their household begins to grow. Maybe they start a business, and now they're responsible for employees as well and and greater financial resources. Think of all that, as connected to what's flowing out of this mystery, the mystery of the family, the mystery of the household. And therefore, fathers are charged with the responsibility of providing for the nurture and admonition of these children in the Lord. See this in verses 1 through 4. Likewise, servants are to obey their masters from the heart as servants of Christ, Obey your masters from the heart as servants of Christ, and masters are forbidden to exercise authority by threats or partiality. Now, this last section on, on slaves or servants and masters doesn't have an exact application in our day, the amount of responsibility that a master would have had uh, for a a servant or a a slave uh, is different than the kind of responsibility that an employer has for an employee um, or that um, teachers have for students, but what I want to argue is that there's an analogous application. It's not the exact same responsibility, um, but there's an analogous application uh, um, for us with regard to work with regard to labor. That's the focus of his exhortations here. How are you working for one another? How are you giving direction? How are you exercising authority? Are you doing it uh, just trying to take advantage, trying to get what you can get, or are you doing it in service of Christ? Are you doing it for Christ? Are you doing it for the Lord? Are you working as unto him, or are you doing it as a man pleaser, with eye service? Are you just manipulating and threatening and trying to get what you can get. You might summarize this message as exhorting you to keep God's promises connected to your faith and obedience in all your household dealings. Just want a simple one line, okay, where is this going? What are we talking about? I'm just want to exhort you this morning to keep God's promises connected to your faith and obedience in all your household dealings. When you're balancing the checkbook, when you're filling the, the, the refrigerator up with the food that you did with the Costco run, when you're taking the kids to, the, to school, when you're running off to school because it's, you're, you're in college, uh, because when you're gathered with your roommates around the dinner table, um, what are we doing? Well, I want you to keep the promises of God connected to what you're doing because the promises of God are cosmic in scope. They're enormous and they're tied to our households. They're tied to what we're doing together as families and in our homes. And and in the center of this text that we've just looked at, Paul invites us to do this explicitly when he reminds Ephesian Gentile children of the promise that goes with the fifth commandment, that it may go well with you and you may live long upon the earth. That's Ephesians 6, 2. We've heard this so many times that we read over it fast, we hear it, and we say, Yeah, that's good, and yay, good job. I believe that. And and sometimes we we don't miss something really enormous that Paul is doing there. Note this well. Paul's writing to Ephesus. He's writing to a, a a congregation in a outside of Palestine. Outside of Canaan, outside the promised land, he's writing to a church of Gentiles. Now, surely there were, there, were, uh, there were Jews as well there. But note this well. Paul says that Gentile believers are now heirs of the promises that were originally given to Israel. That promise that went with the fifth commandment, that promise that went with honor your father and mother was initially given to Israel... As they were getting ready to go into the land of Canaan, and now Paul applies it to them all. We can we get there when we ask the question: What land is Paul talking about? I, you know, I suppose technically you could argue he's still talking about Canaan. You might get a piece of it, but I don't think that works. It's, it's a tiny little piece. And that's, that's, not, that's not what he's getting at. And I think he, this, is, this is suggested in the way Paul actually paraphrases uh, the text, paraphrases the verse. He doesn't say the land that the Lord your God is giving you which is the text, which is the way it's, it's said in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, when the law is given. Because right there, they're on the cusp of being given the land of Canaan. But this time, Paul paraphrases it as he shifts it to apply to everyone and says that it may go well with you and may, you may live long upon the earth. Paul is saying, you children in Ephesus, the little bit of land you got, the place where you are planted, this promise applies to you There. And therefore, it applies to us here in Moscow, in Pullman. Everything that Jesus inherited is now the promised land. Everything that Jesus inherited is now the promised land, along with the final hope of all things being raised and being made new. It's everything that Jesus inherited, all the way up to and including heaven with God forever. Forever. So what did Jesus inherit? The Bible is clear. Psalm 2 says, ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. Jesus, after being raised from the dead, gathers with his disciples before he ascends into heaven. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All of it was given to me. I got Guam and I got the Ivory Coast and I've got Great Britain and I've got Idaho. It's all mine in heaven and on earth, therefore go. And so Paul, in this somewhat subtle, quick promise, reminding the children in Ephesus of this promise, is intimating this, is pointing at this, is alluding to this. He's saying, that land you're in there in Ephesus, that belongs to Jesus now. And so as you honor your parents, God is giving you that land. You're building the kingdom there as you look to him in faith. One of the more tragic mistakes of some Bible teachers is represented by the following quote that I pulled from a book that I was reading recently. This writer says, Paul's reference here, and he's referring to Romans four thirteen, to being heir of the world is probably not to a temporal re- repossession of the world, but is rather an eschatological reference. So this writer is saying, when he says heir of the world, it doesn't mean the world, he means just heaven at the end. Heaven at the end, the heir of the world in that sense, but not to anything temporal uh, in, in this world. And then a few paragraphs down, he summarizes the impact of this, for, where, for whereas marriage and physical procreation were the necessary means of building the physical nation of Israel, the spiritual people of God are built through the process of spiritual regeneration. And this is something that's commonly done. Bible teachers will say the old covenant was about a physical family, an ethnic nation, and a piece of land. The new covenant is now about a spiritual people and heaven. And they will make this hard and fast distinction. But this is actually two half-truths that create a really unhelpful distortion. First of all, this mischaracterizes the old covenant. The old covenant was always about regeneration too. The Old Covenant was not just about a physical family, it was just, just a mark in the flesh and just earthly things. The Old Covenant was always also about a spiritual people of God, too. Yes, the promises were given to ethnic Israel, and they began by bestowing the land of Canaan. But the Bible clearly teaches that the true children of Abraham were always by faith in the promises. The true, the true children of Abraham were always by faith. They were always by faith. And true Jews were always those whose hearts were circumcised by the spirit. Those were the Jews. The true Jews were the ones who walked by God, walked with God, by faith, whose hearts were circumcised, not merely the external flesh, whose hearts were circumcised, how? by the spirit. You can see this in a number of texts that I've listed for you in your, in your bulletin in the outline there, where God is calling upon the people to circumcise their hearts, that what is said outwardly be true inwardly. And, and there's the recognition that this must be done by the working of the Spirit. And then in Romans and in Galatians, Paul labors to point this out. It was always about that. Those external signs were always pointers to what God had to do on the inside. And then the prophets proclaim that the blessings and the curses that applied to Israel in the land would one day apply to all the nations when God becomes king of all the earth. You see this in Isaiah 66 and Zechariah 14. The promises that God had initially given to Israel in the land, the prophets say one day are going to apply to all the nations. When God is king of all the earth, all the nations are required to bow before him, and if they don't, they will be judged. And so now Christ is king. Our God is king in Christ of all the world, of all the nations, of every square inch of this earth. And so those promises apply. The second half-truth is the fact that God is still working through marriage and family and land in the new covenant. Even though it is all by faith, it utterly depends upon the Spirit's work of regeneration. And of course, we still look for heaven. We still look for the resurrection of the dead. It's not like we just, we've arrived. No, we we long for the day in which all things are made new, when we are raised from the dead, but 1 Corinthians 15 says that Christ must reign until he puts all of his enemies beneath his feet, the last enemy is death itself. He must reign until he puts every enemy beneath his feet, and the last enemy that he will put down is death itself, when he raises us from the dead and so that quote that I read to you a moment ago and that common view that the Old Testament was material physical ethnic and land-based merely and that now to the New Covenant God is concerned about spiritual things spiritual heart regeneration and a spiritual people and a spiritual land in heaven is half true in both counts the Old Covenant was concerned about the heart it was concerned about the work of the Spirit it was concerned about faith in the promises and those physical things are pointers to that. And in the new covenant, with Christ coming by his death and resurrection and the pouring out of the spirit, that work that began in the old covenant has, is now exploded. It's amped up. The power is greater, the, the promises are bigger and more powerful. It's not just a little piece of land, it's the whole earth it's not just primarily centered in the sign of these Israelites believing in in God's promises promises and being made new by the Spirit but now this is boldly proclaimed to all the nations but in the new covenant it's now it's not as if the family and marriage become sort of you know a lifestyle choice if you want to do that you can but you don't have to anymore because now it's all about spiritual working no It's always been about spiritual working, and in the New Covenant, God's blessing is being poured out on the way God ordinarily brings people into the world. How he ordinarily has us make people. And so, interestingly, in Acts 2, when Paul is proclaiming the gospel at Pentecost, and the people are cut to the heart and say, what shall we do? He says, repent and believe and be baptized, for the promise is to you and to your children— and to as many as the Lord our God will call, as many as are far off. And so what God began doing through the family of Abraham has now been expanded to all the families of the earth and as many as our, our God will call, as many as are far off. Whatever piece of work you're in, whatever kind of shape your family is in, whoever you are and wherever you are, the offer of the gospel is to you. The offer that the blessing of Abraham come upon you is yours. A related objection to this, insisting that in the new covenant, God is still ordinarily working through the family, through marriage and child rearing, a related objection is sometimes raised... Um, that the New Covenant views marriage and singleness as sort of equally normative options. Again, it's sort of lifestyle choices now in the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, you had to get married, had to have kids. That was how they did it. And now in the New Covenant, it's up to you. You can pick. Um, That's basically based, based on a misreading of 1 Corinthians 7. There's some other texts involved as well, but this is one of the big ones where Paul does say, I think it would be good for you to remain like me. I'm not married, I'm unhindered, and I think it would, be, it would be better if you can to remain like me. To each person, different gifts are given. But what's frequently missed is the fact that Paul, a couple of times in that chapter, specifically gives it something of a, of a time stamp. He says, I'm saying this because of the present distress and then a few verses down, he says, the time is short, and the form of this world is passing away. So Paul specifically gives a timestamp to his instructions and says, we're in the middle of a pretty catastrophic turmoil right now. So given that, if you can stay single, probably easier that way. And Jesus had actually alluded to this as well when he was talking about uh, the distress that would befall Jerusalem when the temple would be destroyed in Matthew 24. He said, woe to those who have children in those days. It's going to be really hard for you because you're going to have to run out of the city when the armies come. And Jesus, again, specifically said that he was talking about the destruction of the temple that would happen in that generation, Matthew 24. But otherwise, the general command of Scripture is to marry and raise children. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. This is the ordinary command of the Lord. Yes, providentially, this is hindered sometimes, it's not possible sometimes, and when God calls people to that, it's under his blessing. Every command of God is blessed by the one who gives it. And so if that's what you're called to, and that's what God has for you, whether temporarily or permanently, it's blessed by him. But otherwise, the general command of scripture is to marry and raise children in the Lord. And the thing that we ought not to miss is that this is part of our cosmic warfare against Satan. It's, It's not merely that this is a good thing to do. But several times Paul says, actually, this faithfulness to marriage, this faithfulness sexually, this faithfulness in obedience to God's word is is doing damage against Satan. The the couple that's not faithful in their marital relations, not faithful in, in sexual intimacy regularly, he says, You you need to come together because you're leaving room for the devil. This is one of the... It's not that many times in the New Testament where, God says, where, the, where the Bible explicitly names the devil or Satan, and it's striking that several of those instances have to do specifically with marriage. Husbands, wives, be faithful to one another. Honor the marriage bed. This is part of your warfare against the devil. You've heard before that God gives unique assignments to different authorities... The civil magistrate has been given the sword, which is authority from God to punish crimes and maintain equal weights and measures, including the protection of private property and requiring restitution when it's been lost or damaged or stolen. See this in Romans 13, Exodus 22, and elsewhere. The other sphere of authority that God has assigned jurisdiction to is the church, "...which has been given the keys of the kingdom, which is authority from God to proclaim the gospel, to administer the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and to exercise church discipline." You see this in Matthew 18, Matthew 28, 1 Corinthians 5. "...to the family, God has entrusted the ministry of health, welfare, and education. To the family, God has assigned the ministry of health, welfare, and education." We see this requirement established in our text, where Paul requires a husband to nourish and cherish his wife as his own body, which is literally to feed and keep warm. You're to make sure that there's food on the table, food in the pantry, clothing, the heat's on, there's a roof over the head. Likewise, the father is required to bring up, or the word there is actually the same word he used back in verse, in chapter five. Literally, he's to feed his children, nourish his children with the culture and counsel of the Lord. This is Ephesians 6, 4. I've given you my own translation of nurture and admonition. The word nurture there is paideia, which is culture, lifestyle, all that goes into being human, the paideia of the Lord, the culture of the Lord, and then that second word there is the word that we, is, is related to the word for counsel. You might have heard of neuthetic counseling, which is biblical counseling, and that's, it's, a, it's a similar word, neuthesia. The counsel of the Lord, the, the culture and the counsel of the Lord. That's what a father is to feed his children with. A father is to raise his children, feed his children in the culture and counsel of the Lord. This includes food, it includes clothing, it includes a place to live, it includes an education, it includes job training, it includes teaching them a good sense of humor, it it includes teaching them how to have a family, how to be a family, how to sit around a table together and enjoy one another's company. It includes hospitality. It includes generosity and faithfulness with finances. All of those things that are included. Add to this Paul's admonition to Timothy that those who do not provide for their own families are worse than unbelievers, First Timothy 5, 8, as well as his prohibition of Christians fellowshipping with those who name Christ but then refuse to work for their own food, Second Thessalonians 3, 10 through 14. He who does not work must not eat, no freeloaders in the kingdom of God. We work from the heart for Christ, our master, without partiality or threatening, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. We work hard as to the Lord, not as man pleasers, not with eye service, but as to the Lord, which incidentally includes making sure that you're taking Sabbath rest. The Lord wants you to work hard for six days and rest for one. That's how you can check. Am I working for Christ? Well, you say, I'm working hard. Good. And did you rest? The Lord requires his people to live like royalty. In the ancient world, in most cultures, there's no days off, really, because everybody's a slave. But those who belong to Christ have been set free. We get to work. We get to serve. And so he says, one day a week, you take that day off and you sit there like kings and queens, my royalty, my freemen, my free people, and rest. Yes, work hard unto Christ your master and rest in him. This includes children also caring for their elderly parents. Remember, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and the Jews. They said, hey, if you give a special large gift to our temple fund, you can take that out of the fund of money you were going to use to take care of your parents in their old age. And Jesus says, that's wicked. You're, setting, you're, you're using your human traditions to set aside the clear command of God. Incidentally, this is why firstborn children in the Old Covenant frequently got a double portion of the inheritance. It wasn't just that firstborn kids were lucky, right? No, you got a second portion, a double portion, because guess what? It was your job to take care of your parents when they were old and to carry on the family business, the family trade. You were to carry on your father's house, and so you got a double portion as the beginning of that. That was your launching, your seed fund, so that you could do that faithfully. But as we think about this task of of loving your wife faithfully and and reverencing your husband faithfully, and, and men providing for your wives and your children faithfully, think big. Think cosmic, because it's that big. Solomon says a good man leaves an inheritance to his grandchildren. Proverbs 13, 22. so you need to think at least to your grandkids, but, but think broader than this. We're, we're, we, don't, we don't serve mammon, we don't serve money, but Christian education is the process of passing down Christian wealth to the next generation. Christian education is the process of passing down Christian wealth to the next generation. How big are the stakes? How high are the stakes? What are you passing down? When, when you are raising your children, when you're, when you're disciplining your toddler, when, when you're sending little Susie to kindergarten, when you're helping with the homework, what are you doing? You're training them to receive an inheritance. You're saying you're going to need to be this strong and this wise in order to handle this. Now, of course, part of it is the wisdom is the knowledge but also because you know that the way God works is if you're faithful you'll have more when you're done than when you started all things being equal you'll have more when you finish than when you started because you're working faithful you're working under Christ which means you're gonna have more to give which means they need to be prepared for that they need to be prepared for that so Christian education is the process of passing down Christian wealth to the next generation the wisdom of Christ is better than rubies, better than choice silver or gold. Proverbs 8. And, and just underline that, be clear. We're, ta- we're Christians here. So if you have to pick between the you know, obedience to Jesus and the bigger paycheck, you pick obedience to Jesus every day of the week. It's way more valuable than rubies. But keep reading in Proverbs. That wisdom which is more valuable than rubies, more valuable than choice silver or gold, is an inheritance that brings with it knowledge and understanding and the fear of the Lord and authority and power and riches and honor. So yes, wisdom is way more valuable than just earthly riches. But if you love God's wisdom, you will love knowledge and wisdom. And you will be given authority and power and riches and honor. Proverbs 8, 13 to 21. So we're talking about businesses. We're talking about influence in a community. We're talking about all the ways in which a household impacts society, schools, businesses, investments, building houses, literally and metaphorically. Schools, education, politics, a Christian education is itself an inheritance of immense value. It is itself something of immense value, which is why we sacrifice for it gladly. But it is also the kind of inheritance that trains you to be a good steward of far, far more. He was faithful with little, will be faithful with much. So, the question is not whether you will have wealth, but whether you will seek it biblically and steward it in obedience to Christ or not. The question is not whether you will have wealth, but whether you will seek it biblically and steward it in obedience to Christ or not. Again, think of wealth in terms of the Bible the wealth of knowledge, the wealth of the Bible, the wealth of Christian community, the wealth of business, the wealth of inheritance, the wealth of a home. The wealth of children, the wealth of grandchildren. Think like Christians. Unbelieving education is oriented to the systems and values of mammon. Unbelieving education is oriented to the systems and values of mammon. But Christian education teaches that all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. And of course, his reproach is worth great wealth being named with Christ, being known as a Christian, is great wealth. Remember, Moses in Hebrews 11 says that he he considered the reproach of Christ worth way more than all the treasures of Egypt. Think like Christians. So a family is a powerful economy, ordered according to God's word and nature for the production of fruitful people who will live forever. We do not set at odds the physical needs and responsibilities and the fruit of our labors with our spiritual needs and responsibilities or heavenly reward. When you're changing diapers, you're serving Christ. When you're doing your homework faithfully, you're serving Christ. You're asking for the blessing of Abraham upon your family to a thousand generations. When you invest wisely in the fear of God and obedience to his word, You're asking for the blessing of Abraham to be upon you and all the families of the earth. It's all connected. Do not store up treasures on earth as if this place is going to stay like this forever. No, moth destroys, rust destroys. But seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom and then let God bless it. How do we do that? How do we live like we believe the promises of Abraham? We do that by knowing Christ, by laboring honestly, by remaining steadfast in his word and in prayer, by marrying, by bearing children, starting businesses, confessing our sins, forgiving one another, providing rigorous Christian education, caring for elderly parents, building houses, investing wisely, giving generously, and looking to help others in need all of those things and again remember what i said last week every family every kind of family single broken full empty all all the forms right as we look to christ and through him to the father you're taken into the family you are a family you have a family because your family is named after the the one in whom all families of the earth are named the father of our lord jesus christ which means that your family has cosmic purpose. Your family, by faith in Jesus alone, has been taken into this process so that the blessings of Abraham can come upon you, that your labors are not in vain, that they are fruitful. I don't think it's an accident at all that having exhorted households to be ordered to Christ, you know, marriage, parents, children, servants, masters... The very next verse where I stop reading this morning, verse 10, Paul immediately then turns to our cosmic struggle against the rulers of darkness in this world. You think that's an accident? No, not at all. He's been assembling the army. How do we fight these principalities and powers in high places? How do we fight these spiritual forces of darkness? In heavenly places how do we actually stand against these cosmic powers of darkness Paul's just told us build a family build a household build a business be fruitful in every way why, why? so that you would stand against them So you would stand against them. This is where God's strength is. As you know the Father through the Son, your family is established in strength. Your house is built on a solid rock and not on sand. And it not only withstands the storms of the enemy, it becomes a significant threat to the enemy. Do you want to do great damage? Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Do you want to do great damage? Obey your parents, children, in the Lord. You want to do great damage. You want the land to be given to us. Then raise your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Don't work as man pleasers. Work as unto Christ. We are at war, and it is only by faith, it is by faith alone that all the families of the earth will be blessed. And and hear this. Remember, what, what justified Abraham? What was it? What did Abraham have? Abraham had nothing. Okay, he had a bunch of servants but he was, you know, a bunch of tents and animals, right? Massive camping trip. No kids. He's old. What did he have? He had the word of God. I'm going to bless you, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we have way more than he had. And what did he do? He believed God. And God accounted to him as righteousness. We have way more than that, we have way more than that, and yet we're still tempted to look at all the things that are wrong, right? I'm just trying to get my kids to sit still. I'm I'm just, I just want, I just, it's, it's difficult, it's challenging, yes. But what are you believing, right? The righteousness of God comes by faith, and only faith. You want the blessing of Abraham? Look to Christ. He died, he rose again, he ascended, he's king, look to him. He is able to do far more abundantly what you ask or think. And look around you, he already is. He already is, because he's good. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you that you sent your son Jesus so that the blessing of Abraham might go to the ends of the earth, so that all the families of the earth might be blessed. Father, we thank you that we are Gentiles on the other side of the planet who have heard this good news and have begun to taste and see your goodness. Father, we ask that you would give us this place, this land, this community, that all of our neighbors would know Jesus, that they would know the grace of forgiveness and the grace of serving him. Father, give us, continue to give us the blessing of faithful children, faithful marriages, faithful businesses. Father, make us fruitful. Think of the pit in your stomach feeling you get when you are
1: afraid. The most fearful I've ever been was in the days following a harrowing experience years ago. Uh, My family was awakened in the middle of the night by a gas line exploding 100 yards from our house. Fortunately, neither we nor our home were harmed, but for the next several days, whenever a cupboard slammed shut or something made a loud bang, we all jumped with fright. Fear brings torment. It leaves us miserable. It leaves us continually on edge. It cripples. It eats away at the inside. It foments and brews new things to fear. However, my fright from that explosion subsided due to loving parents who took special care to let my sister and I sleep in their room for a few nights, made some special meals, and other deliberate acts of love. Their love dispelled the choking black smoke of fear. Sinners are innately fearful creatures the fear of god's impending wrath and judgment on their sin looms large but god's love is so great that he sent his son to pay the price for your sin that he might dispel all your fear the lord declares to you in this supper that you are welcome you are beloved you're reminded of the salvation he gives from your sins here is assurance that th- that though your sin deserved his white-hot wrath because you have trusted in his son All you will taste is the wine of his love and the bread of his fellowship. Here is love that casts out fear. Here is God's voice to the fearful. Come in faith and welcome to Jesus. Amen. So the, so the charge is this, you might think, well, can these, these very practical applications of, of living out the gospel, can they really make that big of a difference in the cosmic war that uh, Pastor Toby was mentioning? And I'd like to just highlight, uh, I'm no mathematician here, uh, so I'll have to have one of the MZ data guys follow me up on this, uh, but the birth rate uh, in the Western world has been plummeting and there are even people that are opting not to have children to save the planet. Um, and so, so having four children is countercultural. Having four children is subversive to the modern secularist thought. And so, think of it this way. You could think, can these practical things actually have that big of effect over the long run? Well, if you have four kids, and your four kids have four kids, I'm no mathematician, but that's 16 grandkids. So go, uh, your great-grandkids living in 2060, they'd represent a town like Placerville, Idaho, which I'm not really sure where that is, but then your great-great-grandkids living in 2080 would be as big as Bloomington, Idaho, which is 209 uh, a population of 209 people. Your great, and that's not their spouses either. Your great-great-grandkids living in 2100 would be as big as Moye Springs, Idaho. Again, I have no clue where that is. <laughs> but six or so generations from now, Your descendants living in 2120, 100 years or so from now, would be as big as Bonners Ferry, Idaho. The next generation living in the middle of the 22nd century, doesn't that sound fun? Or not? (laughs) Would be as many as the residents of the fine town of Star, Idaho, 9,940. The eighth generation would be as large as Post Falls, Idaho, and the ninth as a a bit larger than Meridian, Idaho. And by the 10th generation, sometime in the 2200s. Your descendants would be twice the size of Boise. You think you can't make an impact for the kingdom of God? Well, think again. So have kids and raise them to love and fear the Lord and hear the benediction of the Lord. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the blessings of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon and remain with you always. And amen.